welcome to Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. And this is episode 36. Mm. Um, and yes, it's an impressive number, in which we will discuss audiobooks. Do we like them or not? Or do we get on with them or not? I suppose we could say two things there. Um, and then we're going to be comparing two books by Dean Street Press, who have republished recently a lot of middle-brow, mid-century fiction um, and the two books we're going to be discussing today are A Winter Away by Elizabeth Fair and Tom Tiddler's Ground by Ursula Orange. So, um, Simon, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing good, thanks. Um, I think this is the nearest I've got to finishing the books in terms of, <laughs> like, when the episode starts. It was only about half an hour ago I finished the books, but I'm feeling more like my normal book group, where I'm usually finishing the books as I walk to the book group. So, <laughs> yeah. It's all fresh in my mind, he says. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Broken up for Easter today. Very nice. So we've got two weeks off, which is very nice. So I'm looking forward to some some time off. Um, and yeah, I've had a very reading full week actually because I've had these two books to read. Um, and I've also I've just been whipping three books at the moment. I've finished. Uh, mainly because I bought a lot of books and then felt very bad about it, and I thought I, I really need to read all of these books immediately. Um, I've I've read in a couple of days actually. Um, Arthur, I can't remember the name of the book. Um, <laughs> it's by Michael Sims, and it's about um, the. I've talked about it before, I think, because I just mm. bought it before. Um, it's about um, Arthur. It's called Arthur and Sherlock. That's the name, nice. and it's about. Um, um, the, it's, it's an autobiography of, of Arthur Conan Doyle, but it's not, it's as much about the people that influenced him to write Sherlock as it is about him. Um, and I think Michael Sims is a fantastic writer in general. He is a novelist as well, but I've never read any of his work, but I read his autobiography, uh, his autobiography, why do I keep saying that? Biography <laughs> of, um, a bi- biography of E.B. E. White, yes, several years ago, which was absolutely fantastic as well. And a real introduction to the period and, and the world in which he lived. And this is exactly the same. And he really manages to bring the world to life. And a lot of it is about the doctor. Um, he was Arthur Conan Doyle's tutor at university. His name was um, something Bell. I can't remember his first name. I've read so many books this week. It's, everything's just <laughs> there. Um, and he... Joseph Bell is his name, and he was a real pioneer in the field of medicine, and he was a lecturer at the University of Edinburgh, and he basically was the model for Sherlock Holmes. He he really pioneered this method of diagnosing people through picking up on all of the little details about them, just observing them and being able to say, well, you're this person, you do that for a living because you've got, you know, this type of scar on your hand and that sort of thing. Okay. Um, because in an age without diagnostic tools like x-rays and things, I mean, people did need to be more observant. So it was that element of observation which really inspired him, but also several other people. And it was really interesting about how you know, his father was an alcoholic and was in, a, in an asylum for most of his life. And um, and I was amazed to think that by the time he was 30, you know, he was an incredibly successful writer as well as being a doctor. Oh. Um, and, you know, just like, for goodness sake, <laughs> none of us stand a chance. But it was absolutely fantastic. And I know a lot of people feel that um, reading nonfiction can be a bit of a chore, but this it didn't read like nonfiction at all, and I just loved every minute of reading it. Oh, great. I really recommend it. It's only just come out, so it's still in hardback, but it's um, yeah, really worth the money, I would say, because I, I loved it, and I know it's a book I'll go back to. So we, we mentioned it just before we started recording. Does this amount of book buying mean that Project 24 has, has gone by the wayside? 
Simon. I'm afraid to say it has. Mm. Um, I don't know what's what's happened to me lately. I just, you know, I'm irresistibly drawn into bookshops. <laughs> and but to be fair, I have also had to get books for for the podcast. Oh yeah, fair. Yes, which I feel, you know, I can't. That can't be helped. And then, I, I <laughs> as, that, as though we have no say in what we talk about <laughs> the podcast. I've been forced. <laughs> um, and there also just are a lot of really good books coming out this year. And I, lo- I do like to keep up to date with developments occasionally. <laughs> it sounds as though, and correct me if I'm wrong, that everyone is to blame but yourself. Simon, I think that's a very fair assessment. Of the <laughs> Well, I'm on six books so far. Um, well, aren't you yes. good? I am pretty great, actually. I'm glad, glad you needed. One of the one of them is Winter a uh, Winter Away by Elizabeth Farrow. In fact, I had to buy that for the podcast. And then I was doing really well, and then I had a bit of a flurry um, the other day. In fact, I bought two that have not arrived yet. One was Molly Panterdown's book, um, Letters from England, which is never available, but um, oh. my my ABE books want so alert came up with it. And it's a little more than I'd normally spend on a book, but since I'm not buying that many, I kind of, you know, it offsets itself. Yeah. Um, I'm not really sure how much it covers of of Helitus. I think it comes just before London War Notes, but um, I'm I'm hoping it's not actually overlapping with London War Notes because that'd be (laughs) a shame. But um, that's on its way from America. Wow. Um, As is a book lover's outfit or something, because I was very egotistically googling my blog and my name to see see what, what was up I discovered someone had quoted it in this book and like typed out one, part of one of my blog posts and thought, oh wow a fun thing to have on the shelf I can't remember what the book's called or who wrote it <laughs> <laughs> I'll feedback a future date that's exciting well that's yes. something that you can't not buy really well exactly that's what I thought um, so yeah I'm on track six books for three months is you know exactly on track uh, yes, yeah, so I should say at the time of recording it is 31st of March, although I don't think I'm going to edit this before we're a few days into April. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah. Um, as for what I'm reading, it's interesting, I'm reading cover books. Um, it's interesting to talk about biography because I'm reading a really fun collection called Lives for Sale, which is edited by Mark Bostridge, um, which he's asked lots of biographers uh, to write a short, usually sort of just three or four pages, um, a short sort of detail about something interesting that happened to them uh, whilst they were writing, or interesting aspect of writing a biography. Um, so it's got like Hilary Sperling talking about meeting Ivy Conteverette's sisters. It's got someone discovering that their su- their subject they've been working on has been picked up by somebody else, and then what, whether whether or not to keep going with it. Um, it's got all sorts of really interesting sort of like unexpected things and lots of big names like Hermione Lee and Claire Tomlin and basically every biography you can think of except Anthwaite who I was hoping would be there and isn't oh um, so yeah it's a really interesting collection it was originally published for the relaunch or new edition or something of the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography I learned oh. from the introduction <laughs> which um, I don't know when that was but a while ago I picked it up in a charity shop I think but um, yeah I'd recommend handing it out if you're interested in biographies in general yes that sounds really interesting I'm currently in a very long chapter by Mark Bostridge himself about, and I can't remember who it is now, but he seems to have given himself an enormously long chapter in the middle after insisting, presumably, that everyone else only has a handful of pages. Rather bizarre. Wow. <laughs> Egocentric. Yeah, come on, Mark. Mm-hmm. But he's probably spent a lot of time editing it, too. So, you know, he, he deserves a chapter. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And the other book I'm reading is for the 1951 Club, which is the next in the series of clubs that Karen from Cagsy's Bookish Ramblings and I are doing, um, where we encourage everyone across the blogosphere to read books from the same year. And I'm reading School for Love by Olivia Manning. Oh, I've heard of that, yeah. Yeah, someone gave it to me, I think. I can't remember who. But um, it's been on my shelf for a couple of years, at least. Um, and I didn't know anything about it, but was rather surprised to learn that it's set in Jerusalem when I started reading it. Oh. There you go. <laughs> but it's really good so far. Enjoying it. Stuff. Yeah, she wrote the Balkan trilogy, I think. Yeah, I was going to say, I yeah. know there was some trilogy that's vaguely famous that she wrote, but yeah. I've not read it. Trilogy's too much commitment for my liking. <laughs> Says she after we... So many episodes you've been talking about Elizabeth Jane Howard's, like, septology or whatever it is. Yeah, I know, but that's so good, honestly. I mean, can't <laughs> not. We almost had an episode where it wasn't mentioned then, so I thought we should get it. <laughs> Speaking of that, trilogies that are often mentioned, the Gilead trilogy. Come on, Richard. Well, yes, no, sorry, yes, but that was over several years. This is true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we haven't mentioned Marilyn Robinson for a while, except yeah. in the last episode, <laughs> but before that, it had been a while. You know, maybe we ought to reread them for a, a, a kind of upcoming episode. Sure, we've never actually done them for an episode, have we? we just, yeah, we haven't. We just mentioned them, them in passing, yeah. <laughs> Like have... leaves. Oh, that's very beautiful. Yes. <laughs> oh dear. Um, great. Are you reading anything else at the moment? Um, I'm reading a children's book. Well, it's not a children's book, I suppose. It's a. It's not technically young adult either. I think it's called Middle Grade. Um, book for school. I'm trying to, you know, get down with the kids and see what's uh, the latest to teach next year. And I'm reading one called Cogheart by Peter Bunzel, which is very popular at the moment. Um, it's on all the awards lists, and it's one of those steampunk books which I've never read before. Um, mm. So it's set in a world where people can be made out of machines, basically. Um, it's really good. It's like an adventure story. It's good fun. I think I might teach it because the kids will probably enjoy it. But if anyone's looking for a good book for their child to read over the Easter, I recommend it. Oh, so what sort of age would you recommend it for? Uh, probably, I would say, 10 to ten to 12. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe a, a, a precocious nine-year-old would enjoy it, someone who's got a good, read, like a good reading age, because there's quite a lot of challenging vocabulary. Is steampunk the new thing that kids are doing now? Um, well, yeah, because there was this big thing for dystopian for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's starting to be on the wane a bit now, and people are looking for more historical, more interesting stuff. So, I mean, there's always the the contemporary... Uh, John Green stuff that people love yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah no, people are, are getting more into this kind of historical straight like there's still an alternate an element of alternative reality about it but yeah that seems to be becoming increasingly popular which is great because you know I'm, I'm tired of reading these dystopian books now yeah fair enough I was wondering what would come after dystopian. So there you go, good to know. Yeah. <laughs> Not that I read any of the dystopian um, teenage fiction <laughs> but at least no, I didn't know. <laughs> don't have to now. At least I didn't have to, and I didn't have to anyway. But, <laughs> but it's good to know what, what I can be ignoring that's different yeah. than I was ignoring before. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> right, audiobooks then. Yeah. Um, um, I can't remember. I think maybe my brother suggested this topic. Um, apologies for someone else. But um, let's say it was. Thanks for suggesting it, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Rachel, you told me that you have strong feelings, but I don't know what they are. Yeah, I have strong negative feelings. Ah. 
Yeah, I'm one of those people who is very prone to drift off um, in life in general. And, <laughs> to to um, sleep or just get bored? Or... No, my mind starts going off in different directions. Okay. So if I'm listening to a book, I'm normally listening to something while I'm doing something else. Because I can't, I have to be multitasking at all times. So um, I will I'll be like, oh, I'll go and uh, do some cooking. And while I'm cooking, I'll listen to this podcast or I'll listen to this audiobook or whatever. And, you know, I get so absorbed in what I'm doing that I just, I haven't taken in any of it. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so, do you, so you do still try audiobooks then? Well, no. The, the last time I tried an audiobook, it was because I was driving to Norfolk and... The road to Norfolk is long and boring, and I, <laughs> I was alone in the car, and I thought, you know what will kill the time here? I'll listen to an audiobook. So I thought, yeah, I felt really pleased with myself. I went online, and I figured out how to download it and get it all on my iPod and plugged it all in, um, and I was like, brilliant, I can, I can probably get a whole book done. And what was it? It was a Virginia Woolf book, which I think probably was mm. my first mistake. Yeah, it could be, yeah. Yeah. So um, I started driving and it was a bit of a tricky situation because I had to navigate lots of difficult bits of motorway that I didn't know. And I got to kind of out of the M25 and realised I was on Chapter 5, apparently, and had, <laughs> had, had taken in none of it because I'd been so busy concentrating on what I was doing. Um, and then when the road was kind of easy, I, I was able to, to listen to it. Um, some more but then you know I got to the end of the journey and I was like actually I can't really remember much of what's happened I've just kind of absently taken in these words and I don't think it helped that it was Virginia Woolf because obviously it's not necessarily going to be a linear narrative anyway and it's more language based plus the person's voice was annoying I was going to say I've had an audio CD of To the Lighthouse for many years and I've just never (laughs) yeah I've never listened to it And obviously, I love the lighthouse, but yeah, it's just it's, it's not. I do, I do find it, when I listen to audiobooks, they have to be a little more captivating, um, yeah. sort of maybe plot wise, because you need something where you can just drift off for a, for a equivalent of a page, I guess, a minute or two or whatever, um, yeah. and it doesn't matter too much. <laughs> uh, which I suppose in Virginia Woolf, you can drift off for a solid half of it, and you won't have missed them much, <laughs> much in the way of plot, but. But if the if as you say like the point of reading Virginia Woolf is because the language is so beautiful and you and you're sort of not really paying any attention to it, it doesn't yeah. really work, does it? Um, I don't listen to audiobooks very often, uh, and I think that's partly because I listen to so many podcasts. Well, so I listen to podcasts on the way to and from work. I walk to and from work, and I listen to my daily audio bible on the way to work, and I listen to whatever else I'm listening to on the way back which is usually a book podcast or, as mentioned before or here, Neighbours, the Neighbours recap podcast, <laughs> um, which I highly recommend to anyone. <laughs> I love it. It's called Neighbours. <laughs> yeah, isn't it great? Like Bible on the way to work, Neighbours on the way back to work. <laughs> the classics. Um, <laughs> and I just, I, my attention span's not good enough for the length of time it would take me to listen to an audiobook actively no. sort of 30 minutes a day or 25 or 30 minutes a day. Um, because they're often what, like ten hours or something, and yes. and I don't normally read a book for for longer than a couple of weeks, and that's when I can I don't know where if I want to sit down and read it for ages I can do. So with an audiobook, by the time I got to the end, I was like, well, I don't remember what happened at the beginning. I can't go back and check like I can with a book. Quite often, if I pick no. up a book after a while, I'll flick 
around like for trying to re-familiarise myself with the names and stuff. Can't do that with a book, with an audiobook. Um, and then, yeah, like you, I think I just often just sort of drift off and don't quite remember what's happened. Yeah, it's very, like, the thing is with me as well is I read incredibly quickly. I'm quite lucky in that mm. I can read, I probably read twice as quickly as, as the average person, I think. Mm. Um, and so I can read pages, like, you know, when someone's reading something with you, I've always finished miles before they have. And I find when somebody is reading a book out loud, I think, oh, for, hurry up. Like, if I was reading this, I would have done it, I would have been on page five by now when I'm still on page one. Yeah. Um, and I also have quite, I like to be able to see the words in order, I have to be able to see things to take them in. Hmm, interesting. And I can't, like, if I'm listening, like, obviously if it's a conversation or whatever, then it's fine, or a podcast is fine, but if it's a book, I really have to be able to look at the language in order, I like to enjoy the language and to look at how it's working on the page and mm-hmm. to to see the words and like to see the alliteration. I mean, it's the English teacher in me. I like to look at it and analyze it and think about it. And I can't do that if it's just spoken at me because I can't, I can't, I can see the words in my head, but I, I can't see them together. If you see what I mean. That's interesting. Yeah. So it's it doesn't work for me, and it's not quick enough for me either. Um, let's like take a step back for a second and sort of assume that we sometimes do listen to them, which, you know, sometimes, um, do you have any strong feelings about whether or not a book is abridged or whether or not it's dramatized? Um, I don't, I wouldn't, I never like abridged things. I always want to know the full story and I, and I think, well, what he's cut, what and why, and maybe Mm. I would liked that bit actually. So no, I don't like that. I'm not averse to dramatizing. Um, I think it can be quite fun sometimes to have all the voices and everything else. Because um, sometimes it gets a bit boring just listening to the same voice, doesn't it? Yeah, I think I'm the same as you. That I definitely don't want it to be abridged. And if I, whenever I do, like I've downloaded a few from Audible in my time, I make sure it's not the abridged ones. And dramatised, I if it's like um, if it's a book I've already read, then I'm quite happy to have a dramatised version of it. Um, if it's like something that I feel like I really value for the writing, then I don't want to dramatise. But um, my friend Marley, who mostly listens to audiobooks, it's like her preferred method of reading. Oh wow! Um, which is yeah, um, she, we, yeah, <laughs> surprising to me, but, but you know, great for her. She gave me, well, she's given me many um, audiobooks over time. Bless her. Thanks, Marley. She does listen occasionally. Um, she gave me some dramatised Agatha Christie books. Oh. Um, and that was quite fun because it meant I could listen to the ones that I'd already read um, and at the same time I could listen to ones that I hadn't read which I probably wouldn't want to do if it was written out so if it, if it weren't dramatised because then I would feel I could never read it whereas then this way I feel like I've, I've only listened to the dramatised version I can still read the actual book later if I want to yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Particularly since, as you say, I tend not to remember things if I listen to them rather mm-hmm. than read them. It means I don't remember who the murderer is where most of the books <laughs> over that time. I know, ideal. Um, and also because they're dramatised, they're rather shorter than if they were just read out. So that makes it, you know, easier to remember the beginning once I got to the end. <laughs> yeah. Um, and of course, if it's not dramatised, then the the narrator's voice matters an awful lot, doesn't it? Yes. I think often that I would love to narrate an audio book. Well, you can. There's um, and I can't remember the name of it now. I'll put it in the notes in my blog post. But there's a there's a site which is just nice people who 
give up their time reading audiobooks, particularly of hard-to-find books. Oh. Which I, I have downloaded. I downloaded... Oh, it's a LibriVox. That is called LibriVox. Um, I downloaded a book by um, Herbert Jenkins from it oh. uh, called The Return of Alfred because it's impossible to get a um, physical copy of it or it's very expensive. So I thought, why not? And it was really good, actually. I was really impressed. Um, I think the lady who did it was... Danish, perhaps, and she was very, she was very good. And it was just occasionally there was a word that she obviously didn't recognise or didn't know how to pronounce it. And so you get, obviously, it was a professional. If it had been professionally done, it would have been changed. But it would just had the occasional like moment where it was quite endearing in a way. <laughs> I mean, and I should point out, so much better than my pronunciation of Danish would be, which is, <laughs> you know, completely non-existent. <laughs> um, but yeah, I know a few people on Twitter who do do those books and I think it must be quite um, quite a fun task I guess although I imagine also very tiring and long winded as well yeah and I suppose the thing is if you make a mistake then it's like oh you know you've got to start either start all over again or just keep going knowing you've made a mistake well I suspect they're probably much like I editing this podcast use audio editing software I'm not sure oh right well I mean I don't have I don't have all that technology <laughs> audacity is free to download <laughs> Audacity. Okay. Audacity. If you, you can start editing the podcast if you want, Rachel. Oh, no. Nobody, <laughs> nobody, nobody wants that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's, I, I haven't been tempted to do it myself because of the amount of time it would take, really. But um, Although I did once start reading out um, Diary of the Provincial Lady, oh, no, The Provincial Lady Goes Further, because I had a dramatisation of the first book, which had Imelda Staunton in the lead, who we'll be seeing they, tomorrow, talking more yeah. about later. Um, and I really enjoyed that, but they never, it was, and it was a BBC dramatisation, but they never did the second one, so I was like, fine, I'll read it that myself. <laughs> then, <laughs> but I didn't get very far. But, you know, I used to play it to myself when I was going to sleep. <laughs> Simon, that's adorable. <laughs> isn't it? Isn't it, though? Because <laughs> I used to listen to my diary of intro lady cassettes to go to sleep quite a lot. So um, I was like, then I'll start listening to my own voice reading the sequel. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> If yeah. anyone wants a copy, sadly, it none exists. <laughs> uh, are there any narrators that um, you particularly have liked in the past? Do you know what? I could listen to Alan Rickman, rest in peace, voice any you know to for any length of time. Oh. I would love to listen to an audiobook with his voice on it. Did he do any? Do you know? I don't know. I feel like he must have done. Yeah, probably. Send any recommendations, people. Yeah. But, I mean, to be honest with you, I just, I can't, I, I would never really use audiobooks because I just cannot take in information in that way. I have thought about doing it for drives, um, like you say, because it, I find driving so boring that it, it's something, I tend to just end up putting podcasts on my phone and then just, like, changing it when I get to a traffic light or something. Yeah, I don't never know what it is driving. about conversations. It's like, I can take in podcasts, no problem. But for a book, somehow, I don't know what it is. I just wander off. I, I don't understand the difference, but it is bizarre. Yes, I um, I would listen to Judy Dench narrating anything, obviously. Yes, of course you would. Of course I would. I'd like to have her just sit next to me in the car reading the book out loud to me. That'd be lovely. <laughs> Judy, if you're listening, get in touch. Um, <laughs> but, um, I listened to a good recording of a good audiobook of... Um, the Egg and I by Betty McDonald a while ago, um, because the company who who make it, who I now can't remember the name of, sent me a audio file to review, which is very sweet of them. Um, 
have you read the Agonai? Uh, no, I've got it, but I've never read it. Oh, you'll love it. It's very funny. Well, I mean, I guess if we were both audiobook aficionados, we'd be able to pack out this segment with all sorts of insights. <laughs> yes, but we're just not... I mean, I can understand people who really enjoy them and find them useful, people who are able to do something while listening to something else. But, I mean, I'm just... I cannot listen to someone reading a book while doing something else. And if I was going to have to sit in a room and not do anything, then I might as well just read a book. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Actually, i tell you when I have enjoyed them... Um, so I was painting, they're quite good for, for that, and I don't paint very often, but it, but you can't really watch TV or something while painting, obviously, so it's quite nice to have a story on in the background, and I think I listen to I just, it. I just have this wonderful image of you in a in a room with an easel and a book, floating <laughs> yeah. in the background. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> I'm basically very bohemian, <laughs> but also not at all bohemian. Um <laughs> But yeah, I found those odd things on Audible that there are a couple of Dennis McHale books or, that you can get there that, again, are extremely hard to find in physical form. So I, I listened to Shelby Arry and maybe it was just Shelby Arry, um, as an audiobook by Dennis McHale and, oh, and, um, The Majestic, the Majestic Mystery, a murder mystery he did. Um, and yeah, that, those were quite fun to listen to. The same narrator for both of them. He did a good job. But, um, it's one of those occasions where if there is a, second-hand copy available, then I, I'll get that instead. I'm, but I do find it, it's an avenue for finding some books that are otherwise impossible to find. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd be intrigued to know from people who do love audiobooks uh, why they love them, like what yes. makes them so, like, what, how they get overcome those obstacles, or maybe they're just not obstacles to them. Maybe they, maybe they have much better attention spans than we do. And maybe they do, but I'd be interested also to know, like, when people listen to them, because I think some people must listen to them when, you know, maybe before going to bed or something, and maybe that's a good time. But the thing is, if I know, I would just fall asleep. So, so I have used it because I, I do find the spoken word often helps me get to sleep, so it wouldn't be an ideal <laughs> time to try to learn, like, to actually listen to the book. No. I found I, I knew the beginning of the cassette sides for the Dimension Lady very well, and the end <laughs> not particularly well. <laughs> Tell us your example. I mean, we've got nothing to read. We've made it very obvious, haven't we? But I would really be interested to hear other people's experiences um, because I feel like perhaps if I could just get the knack of it, it would be great. Yeah. Um, I think it would... I mean, obviously people love it. I do, I do just wonder how... If, if it was your main way of reading, how many books you'd be able to get through in a year? Probably not that many. Yeah. Because they take so much longer than, than just reading um, like a normal book. Mm. Interesting. And obviously great for people who are, you know, losing their sight or whatever. I think there's yes, a real lease of life there. Mm. Yeah. Um, and yes, I suppose it's good that things like LibriVox or whatever exist so that there's more options for people who can only listen to audiobooks. Yeah. Because I imagine if before the internet, you know, there weren't that many being made and they wouldn't have had much of a choice. So. No. Hurrah the internet. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so I guess our conclusion for the first half is ultimately, well, mine is probably going to be audiobooks colon no, but um, <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not, a, not a never at all, but a only in emergencies. Yes, it's just, the thing is, I've got nothing against them. They just don't work for me. And that's just how it is. That's how yeah. it is. Um, but something that did work for me this week 
Well, yeah, that's um, a great segue for a while. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, I saw the opportunity and I leapt in. Um, <laughs> is the Dean Street Press books, which um, I just I was just amazed at how good they were. Yeah. So um, we we were both sent one of these as a review copy. I was sent mm-hmm. Tom Tiddler's Ground by Ursula Orange, um, and Rachel was sent A Winter Away by Elizabeth Fair. And this, yeah. we and so we, and then we independently bought the one we didn't get because we thought that's too good an opportunity to lose. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah like, shall I start? Shall I talk about Tom Tiddler's Ground if you take A Winter A Winter Away as a brief intro? Yes, of course. Yeah. So, uh, Tom Tiddler's Ground is, was written in 1941, so very much in the middle of war. Um, and it starts off with, um, a woman called Const, sorry, Caroline, who is evacuated to the countryside with her daughter to an old friend called Constance. Um, and it's sort of a long-standing arrangement that she might have, she might be evacuated there if it's needed and it turns out to be needed. Um, and, that takes her to this village of Chesterfield where there's, sorry, Chesterford, as where there's this, um, whole sort of drama playing out in various different sections. But the mainstay of it is this clash of Caroline, who's this charming and, um, slightly immoral and very lighthearted and not, and quite a little thoughtless character versus Constance, who is very good and very anxious about everyone else being happy and, um, very selfless. And it's sort of, you know, a classic sort of sensibility-esque meeting of opposites in a sort of, sort of sororal friendship. Um, and then all sorts of other things come around, like adultery is thrown in and, you know, um, people with secrets, uh, there's, yeah, um, all sorts of the sort of thing that you get in a, in a village chronicle novel that we can talk about more, but nothing particularly, <laughs> um, Unexpected. If you're thinking misread or ritual crumpton or something, you've probably worked out the sort of things that are going on. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, I, well, I have to worry about it, but I really loved it. I've been wanting to read Ursula Orange for ages because Scott at the blog Farrowed Middlebrow, who, who is curating this series and choosing the titles for it, has talked about how great she is for ages and she's always been impossible to find any copies of. So hurrah for, um, Dean Street Press bringing them back and giving me the opportunity. Yeah. After that rather muddled introduction, please get take it away with A Winter Away. Okay, so A Winter Away is by Elizabeth Fair, um, and it was written originally also in the 1940s, I think. I think um, it was 50s, actually. 50s? I think right. it was 57. 57, yes. 57, oh, thank you. You're okay. Um, like, complete lack of <laughs> that information. It felt like it was written earlier, I have to say, but... um. Yeah. It's a bit like a Barbara Pym novel, I suppose, in a way, in that it feels like it's set in a time that's a bit earlier than when it was sort of, it feels a bit old fashioned in the sense of when it was written, um, but not in a bad way at all. Yeah. <laughs> and it is quite Barbara Pymish as well in its setting. So it's, um, Maud is the central character. He's 20 and she's delicate and has been sent to stay with her aunt Alice and her aunt's companion, Miss Conway. Um, never quite made clear what the exact relationship is between the two of them. 
Um, mm. I think Miss Conway would like their relationship to be more than what it is. Um, oh, intriguing. Mm. And so they lived, so she lives with them and they're in, she's her cousin Alice, but um, she's actually a lot older than her. So she's in her 60s, these two women, and then Maud comes to stay with them and they live in this little village um, in the middle of nowhere and Maud has been hired as the secretary for the eccentric Lord of the Manor um, who lives over the way and his last secretary is left under difficult circumstances and and she goes along and he's a very eccentric old man he's living in this tumble down house and he has a son called Oliver and a and a nephew called um Charles yeah. isn't it yeah. yeah who are both at loggerheads with him for various reasons and um it's just basically a co- complete comedy of manners really in this village and all the way everyone gossips about each other and um that mr feniston who is the guy who lives in the big house is hilarious an absolutely hilarious eccentric old man and it's just basically what happens when maud tries to intervene there's a friend who is in that secretly in love with a vicar and um <laughs> it's it's just a wonderful funny novel about the minutiae of everyday life in a village where nothing much happens and so everybody is far too interested in each other's lives and in the tiny events of everyday life and I absolutely loved it I got completely sucked into it I loved all of the characters I was laughing out loud and I just thought it was a real find actually and I want to read all of her novels now and they're both quite similar books in setup. Yeah. In they are the, the outsider coming into the village community and, and sort of what happens after that. They? Yes, they're both sort of agents of change within the community, having come from the outside. And it was really interesting reading them quite closely together um, because they do have a lot of similarities. But I think Elizabeth Fair's writing is, I mean, people, it says on the book that she's quite, uh, I mean, I've never read any Angela Thurkle, but that's who she's compared to. Mm. in style so I mean I don't know you've read some circle haven't you would you say that was a fair comparison um no not really to <laughs> I, mean, so, I mean not like world's part but I, I would have so you say that Elizabeth Fair was compared to her because I would yeah. I would put Ursula Orange rather closer to I'm not that they're wildly different stylists but um the thing I found I, I did find them both funny um I think I probably found Ursula Orange more funny and I think that's because her humour tends to be in the narrator's voice and I think Elizabeth Fair's no, I'm getting the wrong way around. Back to what you said. Yes, I agree, because it has. Elizabeth Fair's humour is in the narrator's voice, and Ursula Orange tends to be in the dialogue, I found. Yes. Um, so, yes, I take it all back. Elizabeth Fair is <laughs> like Angela Fair. It's that sort of like sardonic, like, here are these people, and then the narrator sort of underpin, undercuts the um, what the scene by sort of pointing out how ridiculous the people in it are, but being yeah. very slightly or something. Whereas Ursula Orange, I, I thought... It, I think that one, I found them both funny. I found Ursula Orange more consistently funny because I loved the way the, the characters talked and how they sort of, the convincing way that they argued with each other in humorous ways and how. Yeah. Yeah. One frustration I had with it was how everything began with C. It was very confusing. Yeah. <laughs> I kept forgetting which was Caroline and which was Christine. Sorry, Constance is not Christine. <laughs> Constance. <laughs> exactly. See. It did take me a solid half the book to work out which is Caroline and which is Constance, and that, you know, Caroline's surname is Cameron, they live in Chesterford, it's all far too much. Yeah. Very confusing. <laughs> um, I think an editor should have said, fine, but call Caroline Shirley or something. <laughs> um, I thought it was very advanced for the 1940s in some ways, like the, the topics, 
that were discussed in Tom Tiddler's Ground. Yes, I loved how, you know, very casually Caroline is having this affair and it's um she's having an affair with a an actor mm. in London and it's all very matter of fact and she's like, Well, I'm having this affair and her husband seems to know about it and isn't really that bothered. Um and, and she had this weird stipulation that she was quite happy to stand for the night with him but she wouldn't, you know, go and have an affair in the afternoon. That yes. that was that was tawdry. But you know, yeah. overnight, fine. Exactly. And <laughs> it was yeah, it was strange. It's like, you know, she she didn't had a very affectionate towards her husband, but didn't really you could tell that she wasn't really massively in love with him anymore. But then having the affair and then experiencing the war and everything kind of seemed to draw her back together with him. So even though she was having this affair, it, it was kind of it wasn't a, anything that seemed like it was ever going to change anything. It didn't feel it wasn't like, momentous in the way it could be no, in some novels. Yeah. It wasn't, and it didn't make me feel angry towards her. It didn't make me feel that she was cheap in any way. I don't know. I just, I, I, I it was a bit strange because normally when you read about someone having an affair, it's, it's expected that you will take a quite negative stance towards that character. But it didn't change the way I felt about her, which, which I thought was quite skillful, really, on the part of, of Ursula Orange's narration because she still managed to make her a very likeable person. And I think that's what felt quite modern for the 40s, wasn't so much that she was having this affair, but as you say, that it wasn't particularly judged or even particularly a big issue. It was just like, mm. of course she was. <laughs> yeah, it was very much like, well, naturally she would be having an affair. There's no, The only person he's shocked by is Constance, who, who is supposed to be very old-fashioned and... Yeah. Uh, traditional and close-minded i suppose and i loved constance she was such a, such a sweetheart of a character um like it's, it's very impressive to write a character who's that good without being just either unrealistic or annoying or both <laughs> yes and i loved the um i loved how much she loved the baby and how yeah. dreadful its mother was how useful oh, this is she hilarious. Was. so yes this was a different mother who'd been evacuated there from the london slums i guess but um yes. with this child Oh my god, I can't remember the mother's name, but I loved everything about her, and I don't think it was particularly, um, you know, realistic depiction of a working class mother. No. But, but just the way, the way the narrative wrote about her, actually. So yeah, she's humorous in the narrative end of the dialogue, but she's, um, she just takes absolutely zero interest in her child or anything around her, and always seems like faintly surprised that anyone should expect her to be interested in her child, yeah. or, um, or indeed engage in any way in conversation with anyone, do no. anything other than just get the bus to the cinema. Yeah. And yeah. I think it was just wonderful how you've got, and um, Constance is married to Arthur, who is a, a kind of working class made good character. Mm-hmm. And he's very ashamed of the fact his half-sister lives in the village and is a greengrocer. And <laughs> ridiculous charade he makes of pretending that he doesn't know her every time she comes around but Constance insists on having her around with her like 50 children all the time <laughs> and it is very it's a hilarious book and it's very um good on class and um mm-hmm. the, it feels very a very true portrait of the time I suppose and it's you don't often read books that are set during the Phony War as well so that was quite an interesting contextual and historical perspective, especially as she was writing it at the time as well. So you get that real immediacy of of the people kind of thinking, oh, maybe I should do something about the war and being evacuated, but there's no real sense of danger or or any sense of people being inconvenienced massively in any way. I was going to say, because it's like, it's the catalyst for how the whole novel comes about, but there's mm. never, like, no one's fighting. So no. No, one's, no one's that... Um... 
I mean, they're, they're a little anxious about bombs in London because it was it's missing this village. They go back. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Caroline's husband's still in London, and, and they yeah. actually pop up there. But um, yeah, you never get sense that obviously the Blitz hadn't happened and all that sort of thing. So um, when it, in the period she's writing about, but so it's sort of a different perspective in the Second World War, I guess. It's like yeah. it's just this sort of inconvenience that puts unlikely people together rather than a place in which loads of people are dying. Yeah, and I thought that was you know it's, it's nice to read a different perspective on it and to see that actually. Um, in some ways, it was a very positive thing in bringing together people from different backgrounds and breaking down barriers and all the rest of it. Um, if you've got to take something positive away from a war, then well, quite, that, yeah. that, that could be it. Um, but the Elizabeth Fair, I think, is quite very similar in its setting, mm. um, but Maud being much younger as a protagonist and someone who's also single, so she's it's, it's a book more that much that's much more about romance than um tom tiddler's ground tom tiddler's oh, yeah. yeah. about people who have already made their choices romantically and, and what they're doing with those lives that they've, they've already chosen and are settled in whereas um maud is this ingenue who comes to the village and you know, she's very keen to, to do well at her secretarial job and she doesn't think about romance at all as, as you wouldn't if you ship up somewhere where there's nobody yeah. but very quickly it seemed it, well certainly not to Maud but to, to the reader it's very clear that she has several people who are interested in her yes it's sort of a love triangle that she doesn't really yes. pay any attention to yeah. for the majority no of the book going on. <laughs> um, and I think that's wonderful about her and she's I love the relationship she had with Mr. Feniston and I loved his Mr. Feniston I just found hilarious I was chuckling away I think that was my definitely my favorite sections where where she was dealing with him and she was whether she was making up the letters that he dictated yeah. that she hadn't got hold of and oh I wish there'd been so much more of them doing the library so she's yeah. cataloging this library and obviously I want that to be the mainstay of the book and I kept thinking <laughs> go back to the library go back to the house because um, I was less interested in you know the dances they went to or like yes. the, or a dinner party or whatever it was, um, which I still enjoyed reading about. But I was thinking that they've set up this sort of rundown cavernous house and it's cantank well not cantankerous but you know sort of miserly, um, grumpy but lovable owner so well that it seemed a shame not to get more of that. Yeah, I think there were some missed opportunities in the book because I think the house itself and the story behind why he was behaving in the way he was wasn't explored as much as I would have liked it to. I don't think perhaps she intended to make Mr. Feniston as central as actually he did end up being. Mm, yeah, um, maybe. I think it was like that sort of young trio of his son and his nephew and yeah. Maud that he and and did end up being the central sort of focus, didn't they? Yeah. Um, but she maybe her characterisation was too good for for, mm. for old Mister M or whatever it's called, old M. Yeah, but I mean, it's I thought it was a wonderful book and so cosy, and I loved them. And I also I loved Aunt, uh, her cousin Alice, Miss Conway, who's her companion. And Miss Conway is this really jealous and mm-hmm. um, kind of what's I wouldn't call her spiteful, but she has these. She goes up in a huff when she feels yeah. affronted in some way. She's jealous of Maud coming into the house. Um, she's so, so used to it being her and Alice, and she doesn't like the way that Maud is bringing up the past and reminding Alice that she's got family members. And I think there's a real sense here. I remember reading once, and then Elizabeth 
because of the Bowen book, I think it was in To the North, actually, the phrase living, women living together is like living in a house of cards and this idea mm. that it can fall down at any time because women, they don't have a, a legal relationship with each other and often they'll meet a man and go off and live with them instead. So this there's a real sense of fear with Miss Conway that Maud is going to, to displace her in the house and that she'll yeah, have yeah. to leave. And, and it's never quite clear what the relationship is because it felt to me like because Alice is a widow whereas Miss Conway is is clearly a spinster and I felt like Miss Conway wanted to be with Alice in a way that Alice didn't see her well that did um, not occur to me how intriguing did it not (laughs) it didn't I I really felt that yeah I think I just didn't question it (laughs) but I was just like sure she's there whatever (laughs) Um, it's interesting I think that Alice in um, A Winter Away is quite like Constance in Tom Tiddler's Ground in that mm. certainly in sort of innocence or in, and in kindness but but whereas Constance is sort of blithely unaware of Im- immorality around her or you know the, the possibility of immorality um, Alice just sort of like unquestioningly recognises the faults of those around her and just at one point she's explaining to Maud that it's something that Miss Conway's done, I won't spoil it, but, you know, there's some sort of negative quality of her. And she's not surprised, she's not judgmental, she's just like, oh, of course, that's what she's doing because of this. <laughs> it's like, oh. <laughs> that's, yeah. it's, it's, I think that's interesting and probably more realistic than than some, you know, than being very shocked by it because, yeah, in that position, she's seen a lot of the world, she know, well, not a lot of the world, but a lot of people's characters, I guess. Um, and she knows yeah. what people behave like in a village and in in you know those sorts of friendships or whatever they are. <laughs> um, yeah. Whereas Constance is just this like great innocent, and it's very touching how she's desperate to be a mother, as you say. Um, and how, yeah. Yeah. Um, and just and her, her kindness and the um, coming with at the same time with that complete lack of sense that she is kind of in that scene at the beginning where she's saying when the billeting officer come around is coming around, she says, "Would it?" be possible at all to have a mother and a baby come. I know everyone wants a mother and a baby to be evacuated with them. The billeting officer is shocked <laughs> that, you know, that, you know, she said, well, no one wants a mother and baby, you can have them. So it was, it was sort of a nice antidote to um, put out more flags by even a war. It's sort of like how, yes. how, <laughs> how a billeting officer and that relationship can go well and not be spiteful. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that, I've forgotten about that, but yeah, that book is hilarious about evacuees. Um, yeah, I think for me, the both of the books were just marvellous, and mm. I'm really quite surprised that they've never been reprinted. Yeah, and particularly, like, I'd never, outside of Scott's blog, never heard of these people. It's not like someone like Angela Thurker, where most of her books are out of print, but, you know, she's still widely known. Yeah. Like, like without, without, I mean, praise be to Scott for all his investigations into mm. um, these people, because we'll, we'll just never have heard of these people again without him. No. And, and it's un- completely unjust in terms of mm-hmm. the quality of writing and all that sort of thing because it's very they're very well written and mm. very well structured and the characterization is fantastic the setting is fantastic I don't know why people wouldn't want to read them and when someone like Ursula Orange when she was writing I sort of maybe the just paper shortages in the war made it less likely the books would survive I don't know but there's I just can't think why it is with Elizabeth Fair unless I guess by the late 50s maybe tastes were changing a bit and as you say she is she feel, it feels more like a 1930s or 1940s novel. Mm. And perhaps, you know, she just wasn't, you know, in vogue enough for, for the late 1950s when the tide was starting to turn a bit. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think, you know, she is quite similar to Barbara Pym. And I know Barbara Pym struggled to get published mm. towards the end mm. of her life. So mm. 
I think it's the same. Yeah, I think they must have just been unfortunate. I think maybe paper rationing is an issue because Herschel of Orange certainly seems to have had very good reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, but where are all the copies of the books? There aren't any. It's the same with Dorothy Whipple. There's hardly any original copies of her books left, and I think that's because a lot of hers were war editions as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and especially, I think, that, as you say, they're both well-written and both well-plotted. Um, but I think the Asia Orange one's really well-plotted, like really cleverly plotted. There's some sort of revelations there that work that work really well. Yeah. Um, and there's this, we haven't mentioned her, the character called Lavinia, who's this 19-year-old who's a bit in love with Constance's husband, and that's, this, yeah, she, the way her storyline is factored into it as well, without mm. seeming... It seems like a realistic 17-year-old, whilst at the same time, you know, we don't like her. <laughs> but, so it's, yeah, sort yeah. of recognisable without being empathetic, and that's um, not always the easiest task to carry off. Um, no. What was I going to say about... Oh, the title, Tom Tiddler's Ground. How, were you familiar with this phrase before? Never heard of it. So, I was not told of it. Um, for me with it. And then the book I was reading before it, A Wreath for the Enemy by Pamela Franco, which by the way is brilliant. It's probably one of the best books I've read this year. Um, so oh. I might talk about it in a future episode. Um, mentioned Tom Diddler's Ground and I had this one lined up and it's like, oh, is it is it a saying? Because <laughs> I would just sort of assume there might be about a <laughs> character called Tom Tiddler in this. But apparently Tom Tiddler's Ground is like an area that's particularly vulnerable to attack. So there you go. Which they explain it towards the end of the book, didn't they? Oh. When it came up, I was like, oh, right, yeah, okay, that's what it means. But no, I've never come across it before. It's going to be one of those things I see all the time now. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and I guess it was a lot more familiar in the 1940s if you could call a novel that and expect people to understand it. Yeah. So, bizarre. But yes, it does. it's one of those things like um, Sylvia Tanson Warner's novel, Mr. Fortune's Maggot, where because we no longer use the word maggot to mean, like, obsession or whatever it means in that context. It just looks very odd now. Yes. Which, yes, I can't... This, I mean, if anything, this seems quite euphemistic. But... <laughs> yes, it does. But, but, I mean, I don't I don't think I can choose between these two, Simon. But, Rachel, you have to. It's the T.O. Books decision. It's supposed to be difficult. Oh, I just love them both. You go first. Well, whilst I really like them both, there is a clear winner for me. I did prefer Tom Tiddler's Ground and it by Ursula Orange. Um, I think it was just, I think I found it funnier. I say I found them both funny. I found that one funnier and slightly wryer, maybe. And I just, I really love the plotting. Um, I love the unusual setting of, in terms of time and situation. Um, and I think it's probably one of the best books I'm going to read this year. And, and well, I definitely really like To Winter Away. I don't think it's going to be on my end of year, like, top ten, whereas I'd be surprised if Tom Tiddler's Ground isn't. Oh. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I just love them both. I think... I love tea and I love books, Rachel. <laughs> oh, but they're for shoes. I get it. Okay, let me think. Um, I think probably I would have, yeah, I think I'm going to have to agree with you in the sense that I think Tom Tiddler's Ground was slightly the stronger book. And I did read, I did really enjoy it. And I loved all of the different storylines. I think the A Winter Away was wonderful as well, but it did have its moments where it dragged a bit for me. Mm. Like where there were bits that I wasn't as interested in. Like, um, so, but I mean, they were very brief moments, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. um, 
I think, and my, Mr. Feniston was my favourite character, and there just wasn't enough of him, frankly. So, but it's still a fantastic book, and I think both of them would be on my top ten list for the end of the year. And I'm really excited to read more for, by both of them. Yes, if I weren't doing Project 24, I would definitely be putting a huge order in right now. But I'm going to have to, it's nice to know that, you know, if I get to the end of a month and I've not bought my two books for that month or something, or if I'm a bit behind, I can, I can always top up with a Dean Street Press book because I know that I'm going to want them all at some point. Yeah, I mean, I think if, if people who are listening to this, if you are into Persephone books in any way, then these books, these authors are going to completely be up your street. And they're, they're very well produced, the books, actually, and I really like the cover illustrations that have been chosen. Mm, they're all Eric Rebilius paintings mm. in the whole series, which is um, lovely, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I can't wait to get more and, and read more. They're going to be absolutely fantastic, cosy reads. And I should say that they've also done The Lark by Ian Esbitt, which we talked yes. about in the previous episode, um, which is a brilliant, brilliant book, and I'm so excited that it came back. In fact, I first read it. Um, after reading a review on Scott's blog, so it's all come full circle. Um, so yeah, do if 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 once you've bought these two books, obviously and read them, <laughs> then The Lark yeah. is um, yeah a really wonderful book. Um, and they've done twenty so far, and I'm sure all twenty of them are great. Certainly, all the ones I've read are, which is now five, no four of them, five five of them. Yeah, the, the um, Rachel Ferguson's they did um, back at the beginning as well, really good. Yeah, so much to read, so I'm really excited to go through all of them. And I'm sure they'll be appearing in future Teal Books episodes at some point. <laughs> Indeed, they shall. Now, for next time, well, first of all, I say Rachel and I are seeing each other tomorrow, yes. which by the time you listen to this will be in the past. <laughs> <laughs> and, for, and why are we doing that, Rachel? We are off to see um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Yes. Um, and so next episode, we will be doing... A uh, comparison of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is by Edward Albee, um, with whatever play we are both familiar with that seems relevant <laughs> once we've seen the play. <laughs> um, TVD. Um, and quite uncharacteristically, we've also got something for the first half um, yeah. of next time, so you can get planning ahead for that, should you wish. Rachel, could you tell us and who suggested it? Yes, so I had an email from Karen. Hello, Karen. Hi, um, Karen who suggested that we do books that we've does uh, do we still enjoy books that we study or do books that we study end up being ruined for us so i think both of us having been long-term students and also be being a teacher i think that would be a topic we've got lots to say about so um and i think people have lots of strong feelings about this because everyone's been forced to study books at school whether they like it or not so that should be a really interesting one so do feel free to get in touch with books that you loved or hated after doing them at school. And, it, and yes. if you do, we may well mention them in the next podcast. Yes. Um, and yeah, please do send any suggestions we have. We always ask people to. And this week we've actually had two or three. So we're, we're um, more, more on those in future episodes. But it's yeah, always we, great to get suggestions. Definitely, because we are not very good at coming up with them. <sighs> do you, you don't want to know the cats or dogs one, do you, people? Come on. No. <laughs> <laughs> Only this morning I was thinking, oh, boats or trains. It's like, no, Simon, you, you, you've never read a book set on a boat. You've read, like, one book set on a train. So look forward to that episode inevitably happening at some point. <laughs> Actually, as I speak, I keep thinking of them. Maybe I have read one. <laughs> anyway. No, we're not doing <laughs> See, this is what you need to rescue Rachel from. So do get in touch. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks for listening. Um, speak to you next time. Bye.
Bye.